You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. Thanks. I, uh, I hope you've had a great day so far. Um, I hope discussion groups were helpful. I hope you're feeling fresh and ready to go. We are going to get stuck into the Bible uh, in this session in particular because we finished the last talk by exploring three challenges that have stepped forward against the doctrine of the Trinity over the last few hundred years. Those three challenges are that it's not in the Bible, it's not coherent, and it isn't practical. In this second talk, we are going to tackle that first challenge that says it's not in the Bible. My aim, my prayer for this talk is that all of us would come away with the firm conviction that the doctrine of the Trinity is biblical and to actually see it for ourselves in the Bible. And in particular, when we get to the end, I want to show you how the Bible actually leads us to say those three things that we saw in talk one, that there is one God, that the Father, Son and Spirit are each identified with the one God, and that they are distinguished by the relations between them. But as we jump in, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come before your word, we pray that you would speak to us. Uh, Reveal yourself to us as you are. As we seek your face, show us who you are. And as we do this, please focus our minds, please soften our hearts, give us humble hearts to receive your word in faith. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. Well, before we get to the Bible, I want to start by exploring what kind of expectations we should have when it comes to finding the Trinity in the Bible. Because if we're expecting to find something in the Bible that isn't actually there, then we'll ultimately be confused and disappointed and conclude it's not in the Bible. So what should we expect to find in the Bible? Um, If we expect to find the Athanasian Creed, we're going to be disappointed. Because the Bible is not a theological textbook written in a vacuum. It doesn't give us formal statements of doctrines. Everything in the Bible was written for a particular people at a particular time to address particular circumstances. That's not to say there isn't any doctrine in the Bible. It's actually full of it across a whole range of topics. But it isn't given to us in formal, abstract statements. What we actually get is little fragments and snippets of doctrines as they become relevant to particular people at a particular time. The Ephesians didn't need to hear the same thing as the Galatians, who didn't need to hear the same thing as the church in Rome. Doctrine is always contextual in the Bible. It's always put to work. And so what we actually need to do is collect these fragments of doctrines, reading them in their own context before assembling them together in some kind of formal statement. And it's especially true for the doctrine of the Trinity. 
Have a look at, we're on page 27, have a look at what B.B. Warfield says about this. The doctrine of the Trinity is given to us in Scripture, not in formulated definition, but in fragmentary illusions. When we assembled the disjecta membra, scattered parts, into their organic unity, we are not passing from Scripture, but entering more thoroughly into the meaning of Scripture. What's he saying there? There is no formal doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible, because that's not how the Bible works. But what we do have is fragmentary illusions, as he calls it, and when we come to the Bible, we're collecting them together. And when we do that, we're not passing from Scripture, we're entering into its meaning more thoroughly. What does that mean for us? It means we can't just look at a single verse or even a single chapter. If what we're doing is collecting fragmentary pieces, we actually need to move across the whole Bible, both Old and New Testaments. Um, If you imagine somebody panning for gold in the river, they actually need to move up and down the river, continually sifting for gold rather than just doing the same bit over and over again. In the same way, we're going to need to move up and down the Bible if we're going to sift out the gold when it comes to the Trinity. Which leads us to a second question. What should we expect to find when we come to the Old Testament? Because as we saw earlier today, the Bible doesn't tell us everything all in one go. It's actually an unfolding story, an unfolding revelation. Uh, That's what we saw with the language of mystery, which is how the Bible talks about something previously hidden, but now revealed. And so we shouldn't expect the Old Testament to give us um, the same revelation of God's triunity with the same uh, clarity and explicitness as we find it in the New Testament. But that doesn't mean there's nothing for us to learn from the Old Testament. There's actually a great deal we can learn, and we're going to see that. Um, Have a look at what Herman Bavinck says. He says, the Old Testament conveys only an inexplicit indication of God's Trinitarian existence. It is the first part of the record of the gradually unfolding doctrine of the Trinity. Still, The Old Testament contains, not just in a few isolated texts, but especially in the organism of its revelation as a whole, components that are of the highest significance for the doctrine of the Trinity. I think Bavinck actually says something really interesting here, because he starts by saying the Old Testament only gives us an inexplicit and unfolding view of God's triunity. And so we might expect him to say, Let's just spend all our time in the New Testament. But that's not what he says. He actually says the Old Testament contains things that are of the highest significance for the Trinity. So what's going on here? Let me ask you this question. If you had to explain who the bad guy is in the first Harry Potter book, how would you do it? Uh, Just a few months back, I actually finished reading the first Harry Potter book for the first time since I was a kid picked it up again, Uh, and one of the big mysteries in the book is um, around which professor is out to get Harry. And when you first read the story, all the clues point to 
Snape. But you get to the end, and the twist... What, what, did, what did I say? Oh, good, good, good. I'll keep going. Um, the twist, spoiler alert, is that it's actually Professor Quirrell. Spoiler alert. Now, if you had to explain who the bad guy in that book is, you could say, well, we really only know who the bad guy is right at the end. And so the last chapter is the only chapter that tells you anything about the bad guy. But that would be a big mistake. Because as I reread this story again, one of the things that struck me was how many clues there actually were pointing to Quirrell the whole way through. Actually, every chapter is telling us a whole lot about the bad guy. We just missed it the first time because we didn't know who to look for. Knowing how the story ends helps you appreciate all the clues you wonder how you missed the first time. The Old Testament is full of clues pointing us to the doctrine of the Trinity. And if we limit ourselves only to the last chapter, the New Testament, then we're going to sell ourselves short and we're going to miss the richness of the unfolding story. But on the flip side, we can actually only appreciate those clues when we know how the story ends, who to look for. So how does the story end when it comes to the Trinity? Well, when we come to the New Testament, we see that there are three names, three names repeated again and again. He, uh, Jesus actually gives us these three names in the Great Commission. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus gives us three names, Father, Son, who we'll also see called the Word, and spirit. And it's these three names that unlock the Old Testament for us. They tell us who to look for. And this will become important when we get to a few details soon. So, let's get stuck into the Bible. Now, we're going to start with the Old Testament. Let's look for some clues. Where I want to start is actually by building up a little snapshot of the ancient Israelite worldview the biblical worldview. Uh, we won't take too long in doing this, but this will really form the foundation that we're going to build on as we explore the Bible together. And the first piece in the ancient Israelite worldview is that there is only one God. The Old Testament is pervasively monotheistic. It says that there aren't any other gods aside from the God of Israel. This drips off every page of the Old Testament. We could go to any number of places. I'm going to take you to one which makes it absolutely crystal clear. It comes from Isaiah 44. It's there in your booklets. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim it. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. There is no other God besides the God of Israel. But one implication of this is that our God is also fundamentally distinct from the world. 
He is the creator and everything else is creation. The world is not an extension of God, it's not an emanation of God, it's not a part of God. There's a fundamental distinction between the creator and the creation. Uh, We see that, Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We could go to any other number of places, but have a look at what Tremper Longman says about Genesis 1. He says, the most fundamental affirmation of Genesis 1 is that God created all things, including humans. God is creator and we are creatures. The creator-creature distinction seems obvious, but is often forgotten to our great detriment. This distinction between the Creator and the creation is foundational to the ancient Israelite worldview. And it's also worth saying that, although it might seem obvious to us, this worldview was actually unparalleled in the ancient world. No other culture shared the same worldview as Israel. Every other culture in what we call the ancient Near East, around Israel, they they were all polytheistic. They believed in many gods. And they also believed that the world itself was actually an extension of the gods. And so they believed that nature was actually personified in gods. So you've heard of the sun god, Ra, uh, or the Babylonian fertility god, Baal, or even the water god, Asherah. Have a look at how Bible commentator John Currid describes this worldview. In regard to the very nature of the Creator, all societies of the ancient Near East, save the Hebrews, were polytheists. The gods themselves were imminent, that is, personified in various powers and elements of the universe. These gods were not omnipotent, but were restricted in power to the capacity of the natural elements they personified. Can you see how different this is, fundamentally different to the ancient Israelite worldview? Israel said there is one God and He is fundamentally distinct from the world. But the final piece in the Israelite worldview is actually around the place of us, humanity. See, in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, humans were thought to have been made from the remains of dead gods in order to be the slaves of the gods. Uh, You can see this in a little excerpt from a typical Babylonian creation account called the Enuma Elish. This is what it says. From his, Kingu's, blood, he, Aya, created mankind on whom he imposed the service of the gods and set the gods free. The Bible presents us with a radically different worldview when it comes to the place of humanity. Humans aren't made from a dead God, we're made in the image of God. And He placed us in a position of honour and dominion over creation. Uh, You can see that in a place like Genesis 1.26. And so, in summary, the ancient Israelite worldview, the biblical worldview, believed first that there is only one God, and that He is distinct from the world as its Creator, and that He's also given humanity a special place in the world as God's image bearers. I've got a little diagram there. We're actually going to build on this diagram. 
Uh, if you're wondering why I've put humanity under the world rather than over it, it's not because the world is more important than humanity. What we're going to do with this diagram is we're going to try and explain how we relate to God. And so we start with ourselves, with our own experience at the bottom, and in between God and us is the world, the things we can see, hear, and touch. But that leads us to a question. If God is so distinct and separate from creation, how does He actually interact with creation while still being distinct from it? Um, Or to put it differently, if God's so clearly not part of this world, how does He do things in the world? Now, maybe you'd say, I don't know, He just does stuff. (laughs) But I think the first few verses of Genesis actually give us a clue about how God interacts with the world without becoming part of it. So, let's read Genesis 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said... Let there be light, and there was light. Now, did you notice that there are actually three things going on in these verses? In verse 1, we're introduced to God, and we're told He created the heavens and the earth. But then in verse 2, the scene, it zooms in to focus on the earth in particular, um, which at this point is formless and empty. And it's here that we're introduced to a second character. And this one is called the Spirit of God. And the Spirit isn't distant and far off from the earth. The Spirit is close to the earth, hovering over the waters. But then in verse 3, a third thing happens. God speaks. And it's by speaking by His Word, that God actually acts and creates. God's words are His actions in the world. So, how does the God who is separate from this world interact with the world? Well, in the first three verses of Genesis, we're told three things. We're told about the God who creates the Spirit who draws near to the earth, and God's Word, His speech, which is His action of creating. We actually see all three of these things drawn together in Psalm 33, 6, which says this, By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath, which is actually the word for Spirit, of his mouth. See, God doesn't need angels or anything else to interact with the word world. God has everything he needs to act and to interact with the world while still remaining distinct from it. He doesn't use angels or anything else. He has his word and his spirit. But we need to be careful about making these details say more than they actually say. This isn't, 
a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity. And if all you had was these verses, you would never end up with a complete doctrine of the Trinity. But remember what we said earlier about looking for clues. If we didn't know the end of the story, we'd probably miss these clues at the start of Genesis. But because we know the end of the story and who to look for, we can actually start to appreciate these clues. And these first few verses of Genesis, they are cluing us into the fact that even from the very beginning, there is a threefold shape to God's interaction with the world. But what I want to do now is essentially take these tiny little clues and see how they're developed in the Old Testament. So let's start to move up the river of the Bible, panning for gold as we go. We're going to look for some more clues about God, His Word, and His Spirit. We'll start with God's Spirit. We're on page 32 of the booklets, and we're asking what or who is God's Spirit in the Old Testament? And what we see throughout the Old Testament is that the Spirit is how God becomes present to humanity. The Spirit is how God becomes present to humanity. The Spirit is how God works in humanity. Let me show you just one clue for now in Genesis 2 verse 7. We're told, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. The Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, it isn't used in this verse, but the word ruach means breath or wind. And what we do see here is that God brings life to humanity by breathing. So even back in Genesis 2, we're given a hint that God interacts with humanity by His breath, His Spirit. Now, these clues are still definitely more on the subtle end, but the clues start to become more obvious in the rest of the Old Testament. And what we're going to see time and time again is that when God interacts with His people, in His people, He does it through His Spirit. I've got a little table there from Herman Bavinck, which summarizes some of what the Holy Spirit does in the Old Testament. You can see how the Spirit is the way God gives people courage, strength, Skills, abilities, intellect, wisdom, holiness, renewal, prophecy, all these things come to people by the Spirit. God works in people through His Spirit. But for most of the Old Testament, God's Spirit only comes to people in a limited or a temporary way. His Spirit is given for a time and then it's taken away. It's temporary and limited. You see that in the example of Saul. He had the Spirit for a time, and then it's taken away. But come towards the end of the Old Testament to some of the prophets, and they speak of a time when God's Spirit will be given in a full and permanent way. He will dwell with His people by His Spirit fully and forever. Just one example, Joel 28 to 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. 
By the end of the Old Testament, we're still waiting for the fulfillment of this promise of a full and permanent filling with the Spirit. But just by way of summary, what we can see throughout the whole Old Testament is that God becomes present to humanity, works in humanity by His Spirit. You can see that with the diagram there. God remains distinct from creation and yet becomes present to humanity by His Spirit. So that's God's Spirit. What about His Word? Well, if God's Spirit is how He becomes present to humanity, God's Word is how He acts in the world. God acts in the world by His Word. We've already seen that from Genesis 1, that God acts by speaking. He creates by His Word. But have a look at Isaiah 55. 10 to 11. Look at how it describes the Word of God. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, uh, making it bring forth uh, and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my Word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Did you notice that? God actually sends His Word into the earth to accomplish things. He acts in the world by His Word. Have a look at what theologian Timothy Ward says about this. The transcendent God here, and he's talking about Isaiah 55, describes His Word as the means by which He acts in the world. The language about God's Word seems to be a way of speaking about God's active presence in the world. Can you see how God's Word is different to His Spirit? God's Spirit is how He acts within us, subjectively, inside us, but God's Word is how He acts out there in the world objectively. And God can even speak His Word to His people, but it's only by the Spirit that they hear when He works in them. There's a lot more we could say here, but for now we can continue adding to our little diagram and show that the transcendent God who's separate from this world actually acts into this world by His Word. Now, we could stop there and move on to the New Testament, but I think there's actually one more piece to add, and that's the language of God's Son in the Old Testament, God's Son. See, throughout the Old Testament, Israel's kings, like King David, they're described as God's Son, and the king's job was really to function as the presence of God in the world. God actually rules and reigns on earth through the king of Israel, a human who is called the Son. We actually see this in Psalm 2, where it describes how the kings and rulers of the earth, they rise up against God, but what we actually see is that God responds by installing His king on Zion, and it's through this human king that He will rule the nations, and this king is described as God's Son. Have a look. 
the kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now, at this point, the king is really just functioning as a representative of God, almost like an ambassador for God. But by the time of Isaiah, there is an expectation that this son wouldn't just represent God, but would literally be God's presence in the world. Have a look at Isaiah 7. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So we're given a prophecy that a son would be born and this son would be called Emmanuel. And in Hebrew, the name Emmanuel means, literally, God with us. It's an expectation that there would be a man known as a son who would literally be God with us. Or look at Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There will be a man, a human, called the Son, who will bear the name of Mighty God. And through this Son, the Everlasting Father becomes present in the world. So we can add the Son to our diagram, a human who would become God's presence in the world. I'm going to take a drink. I'll give you a moment. I'll give you a question. I'm not going to answer this question, but it's an interesting one. You can talk about this. Uh, what do you think about the idea that Christ actually appears in the Old Testament, like in the fourth man in the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel? What do you reckon? Go, 30 seconds. <laughs> All right, let's bring it in. Just before we go to the New Testament, just before we go to the New Testament, let's summarize what we've seen so far. 
We've seen that in the biblical worldview, there is only one God and He's fundamentally distinct from His creation, but He's also set apart humanity as unique, as His image bearers. But then we asked about how God actually interacts with the world while still remaining distinct from it, and we see that He becomes present with humanity, us, by His Spirit, and He acts in the world by His Word. But then we also have this growing expectation that the one called the Son, a human, will be God with us, bringing God's presence into the world. But what about the New Testament? Well, when we come to the New Testament, we actually start with the same basic worldview as the Old Testament, about there being one God who's distinct from the world. But when we get to the New Testament, something significant happens. God begins to be known by one specific name above all others. Father. Let me show you this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's read a few verses and then we'll kind of point out a couple of details. So Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he says, Therefore, As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. To be sure, although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and one Lord. Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So, the context for this passage is around the issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. That was a big deal for the Christians in ancient Corinth. And we're told that the Corinthians, they thought it was okay to eat food sacrificed to idols based on two beliefs. First, they knew that idols like Zeus... Artemis, Aphrodite, they don't really exist. But that flowed out of a second belief, which is that there is only one God. Idols don't exist because there is only one God. And that's the same kind of strong monotheism that we saw in the Old Testament. So that's what the Corinthians believed, but then look at how Paul responds in verse 5. He does something really interesting. First, he agrees with the Corinthians that idols don't really exist. They are only so-called gods. But then he goes on to clarify what it means to believe in one God. He agrees there is only one God, but then he names that God. And he names this God and identifies him as Father. Father. What's the point? Christians don't simply believe in God. We don't even simply believe in one God. Christians believe in God the Father. He is our God. But how's this different to the Old Testament? We've actually seen God described as Father in the Old Testament, but the difference is that in the New Testament, He is named Father. That is His name. That is who he is. But what does it actually mean for God to be named as Father in the New Testament? 
Well, what we see time and time again is that God is only named as Father in relation to Jesus Christ. That's actually what we see in the end passage, uh, at the end of the passage in 1 Corinthians 8. God is named as Father in relation to Jesus Christ, the one Lord. Let me show you that with an even clearer verse. Come down in your booklets, uh, look at Matthew eleven twenty seven. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Did you notice that? God the Father is revealed and identified by His Son. Jesus didn't come simply to show us that God is the Creator. He came to show us that, above all, the one God of the Father is known, uh, one God of the Old Testament is to be known as Father. Have a look at what the 4th century theologian Hilary of Poitiers says about this. The work which the Lord came to do was not to enable you to recognize the omnipotence of God as creator of all things, but to enable you to know him as the father of that son who addresses you. The end and aim of that revelation of the son is that you should know the father. Remember that the revelation is not of the Father manifested as God, but of God manifested as the Father. Jesus didn't come to show us that the Father is God. He came to show us that God is the Father. Which means it's actually inadequate for us to simply believe that there is one God. We believe in one God, the Father who is made known to us in Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, when you read the word God in the New Testament, who do you think it's talking about? I want to propose that apart from a few exceptions, which we'll come to in a sec, I want to propose that in the New Testament, the word God always refers to the Father. Have a look at what Karl Rahner says about the word hotheos, which is the Greek word for God in the New Testament. He says, We maintain that in the New Testament, hotheos, God, signifies the first person of the Trinity, and this applies to every case in which another meaning of hotheos does not become clearly evident from the context. Now, he is not saying that Jesus is not God. What he's saying is that when you read the word God in the New Testament, it almost exclusively refers to God the Father. God is not an abstract, depersonalized deity. He is the Father. Sometime, just open your New Testament, um, And see if that works. But I want to take this one step further. I want us to see that the language of father isn't just a metaphor. He isn't just fatherly. There are lots of metaphors used of God in the Bible. He's even described as comforting Israel like a mother in Isaiah 66. But what do we make of God being father? Is that just a metaphor? 
Are we taking the earthly idea of fatherhood and then reading that back up into God? It's actually the other way around. Human fatherhood is actually a reflection of who God is. It's almost like human fatherhood is actually a metaphor of who God actually is. Have a look at Ephesians 3. This is interesting. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family, which is actually the word fatherhood, from whom every fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named. Did you notice that? Human fatherhood is actually named from God the Father. He isn't a bit like a father. He isn't just fatherly. He is father. And human fathers are simply a pale reflection of that tender warmth of our loving Heavenly Father. Now, our understanding is limited. Our language of Father, it doesn't communicate everything of what it means for God to be Father. But it's not just a metaphor. God is truly Father. But I want to stop there and just recognize that Father is never a neutral term for us. Father is always an emotional word. Some of us will have happy feelings of love, nurture, wisdom, encouragement. Some of us might have anger or deep hurt. Some of us might have a kind of numbness, a dead space where something should be but isn't. Have a listen to the wise and tender words of Andrew Moody. Have a look. There is only one true father. The frail and fallen men we call by that name are only echoes and shadows of him. Only God shows us true fatherhood. If our experience of human fatherhood has been disappointing or painful, the very good news is that there is another and better father to whom we can turn. God is not like our father. He is the true father our fathers failed to be. Grace City, God is Father in perfect love, wisdom, tenderness, and strength. That is who our God is. So just as we move on, we can modify our little diagram from the Old Testament, and we can specify that God is God the Father. But what about Jesus? Isn't he God? That's the question. If God is Father, then who is Jesus? After all, it wouldn't be an overstatement to say that the whole New Testament, actually the whole Bible, is all about Jesus. Who is He? Well, first, I want to show you that Jesus is unashamedly identified as God in the New Testament. Jesus is God, and He is nothing less. So let me really quickly run you through four things that prove that Jesus is undeniably God. So you'll see those four things there in your booklet. First is what I'm calling divine fulfillment. See, there are a whole bunch of things that are spoken of and expected of God in the Old Testament 
But when we come to the New Testament, those things spoken of and expected of God are actually applied to Jesus. Let me give you one quick example. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah prophesies that one day God would actually come and dwell with His people. But when we get to the New Testament, that prophecy is actually applied to Jesus in the words of John the Baptist. You can see those two verses there in your booklet. The expectation that was that God would turn up, but when God turns up, Jesus turns up. Why? Because Jesus is God. He fulfills what is expected of and spoken of God in the Old Testament. But the second thing is divine action. Jesus does what God does. And we see this first in the miracles. But you might be wondering, what about all the other people who did miracles in the Bible? Yeah, Moses, Elijah. Surely just doing miracles doesn't make you God. The difference is that whereas other people like Elijah do things by the authority of God, Jesus does them by his own authority. You see that there in the example from Mark 4, the wind and the waves obey him. It's his authority because his authority is God's authority. But Jesus doesn't just do miracles. We've also seen him forgive sins, which we know from earlier today is something that only God can do. But even more than that, we actually see Jesus active in the creation of the world. If Jesus is there before the creation of the world, then what is he? It says 1 Corinthians 8, 6, all things were made through Jesus. Jesus does what God does. That's divine action. The third thing is that people often respond to Jesus in the same way that they respond to God. We see that John 14, Jesus calls us to believe in him in the same way that we're called to believe in God. But we even see people uh, worshipping Jesus, something reserved for God alone. You can see that John 9, he is worshipped. People respond to Jesus as God. Why? Because Jesus is God. But finally, the titles used to describe God in the Old Testament are also applied to Jesus And there are two divine titles I particularly want to draw your attention to. The first is Lord. See, God's name in the Old Testament, Yahweh, uh, it means I am. And it's translated as Lord in the New Testament. And Jesus is constantly called Lord in the Gospels. You can see that there, Luke 5. Peter calls Jesus Lord. But some people point out that the title Lord doesn't always refer to Yahweh. It can sometimes be used simply as a title of respect, something a bit like Sir. So how do we know that when Jesus is called Lord, he's being called Yahweh? John 8, Jesus calls himself I Am, which is an unambiguous reference to Yahweh. In fact, The Pharisees, the Jews, they actually pick up stones to stone him straight after he says that because they know what he's saying. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
But then finally, we also have the times when Jesus is actually named and identified as God. These are the exceptions that Karl Rahner mentioned earlier. There are about nine references in the New Testament, which you'll see there, but one of the clearest is John 20, where Thomas called Jesus his Lord and his God. There are four reasons why Jesus is undeniably and unashamedly identified as God in the New Testament. Jesus is God. But, let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered why Jesus is never explicitly named as God, at least in the way we'd like? We would love it for it to just say, Jesus is God. But the Bible never does that. Have you noticed that? It only ever names him God in a slightly qualified kind of way. Have you wondered why? Is it because he's not quite as divine as the Father? No. (laughs) Here's why. Jesus is never called God next to God the Father. Because if God is the Father, then calling Jesus God as well makes it seem like Jesus is the Father. If they're both called God, then what makes them different? If they're both called God, they lose their distinction. And the New Testament never does that. It always distinguishes between them. Jesus is God, but he is not God the Father. The Bible never simply calls Jesus God and leaves it at that. The Bible is more careful and more nuanced than that. It always names and identifies him. Think back to what we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. There is one God the Father and one Lord, Jesus Christ. See, sometimes we think that if we just say that God is the Father and then we prove that Jesus is God, then we're done. And that's the doctrine of the Trinity. But if we're paying attention to the Bible, we'll see that it's not enough to simply prove that Jesus is God. We also need to ask who Jesus is in relation to the Father. So, who is Jesus in relation to God the Father? And I think we're given two main descriptors, two kinds of language, Word and Son. Word and Son. We see the language of Word introduced in John chapter 1. We read this earlier. Have a look. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, can you see what John is doing here? He starts by restating the first verse of the Bible in the beginning, and he retells the story of creation, but he almost gives us a different camera angle on creation to kind of see behind the scenes, and what he tells us is that before creation, before there was anything else, there was something with God. The Word was with God. Remember back to Genesis 1 and how God created through His Word? 
Well, now that word is identified. The word is a he. It's there in verse 2. He was with God. But the word isn't something other than God. It's not God plus. The word was God. Can you see how there's both distinction and unity? The word was with God. There's distinction, but the word was God. There's the unity. And this word who was with God in the beginning is named for us later in the passage, Jesus Christ. And everything true of God's word in the Old Testament is true of Jesus. Jesus is how God acts in the world. When God does something in this world, he does it in Jesus. When God speaks his word into the world, he speaks Jesus Christ in the form of human flesh. Jesus doesn't become the word, the word became flesh. So who is Jesus in relation to God? He is his word. But he's not just described as the word, he is also called the son. Do you remember the language of word and son from the Old Testament? We actually see them come together in Jesus. Have a look at how John puts these two things together in John uh, 1 verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Son. But what does it mean for Jesus to be the Son? Because remember, back in the Old Testament, there are a whole bunch of people called God's Son. You know, there was King David. He was called God's Son. The language of God's Son was almost a title, an office, king, like doctor, principal. So is Jesus just another king like David? Or is Jesus unique in some way? Does something set him apart as God's Son? I think John actually gives us a hint in that verse we just read. Did you notice that there that Jesus is described as the only Son from the Father? And when he says this, John is saying that Jesus is uniquely God's Son. He is God's only Son. And why is He unique as God's Son? Why is He different to all the rest? I think there's a hint in the same verse. He is from the Father. Grace City, that's big. That's significant. Jesus doesn't become the Son of the Father. He is sent from the uh, Father. King David, he became God's Son when he became king. Jesus doesn't become God's Son. He is God's Son and he's sent from the Father. Which actually implies that Jesus was the Son of the Father before creation. Before there was anything else, God had a Son. We see that actually in John 17. Have a look how Jesus prays in John 17. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Before the creation of the world, there was a father and a son, and they loved each other. When Jesus relates to God as his father, he's not doing something 
anything else than what he has been doing since all eternity. He's not doing something new. He's doing the same thing in creation that he was doing before creation. So Jesus is undeniably and unashamedly God. But Jesus isn't the Father. And the thing that distinguishes them is the relationship between them. The Father relates to the Son as His Son. And the Son relates to the Father as His Father. But just before we move on to the Spirit, think back to the Old Testament. Who was the Son? He was God's presence in the world. He was the presence of God in the world, and that's exactly true of Jesus. The Son. Jesus is how God becomes present in the world. When God comes into the world, He comes in the Son. Remember that fundamental distinction between God and the world? We have no direct access to God. So how does He make Himself known in the world? His Son. Have a look at Colossians 1.15. Sorry, I think it's repeated there. Um, it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. We can't see Him. He is distinct. But we can see His Son. He makes the invisible God visible. So, let's modify our little diagram. Jesus is both the Word of God and the Son of God, and He's sent from God the Father to become a man so that He might become God's presence in the world. And notice how this language of Word and Son comes together in Jesus. You might be wondering, which is it? Is it Son or is it Word? Have a look at what Scott Swain says. He says, We're tempted to ask, which is it? Is the relation between the first and second persons of the Trinity more like a relation between two distinct agents, i.e. a father and a son, or more like a relation that is internal to one agent, i.e. a man and his own wisdom or word? The answer is both and neither. While social analogies highlight the real personal distinction that exists between the first and second persons of the Trinity, psychological analogies highlight their indivisible and inseparable oneness. There is both a real distinction between Jesus and the Father, but there's also an inseparable oneness. What about the Spirit? Because remember back to Genesis 1, there were three names given to us in creation, God, His Word, and His Spirit. So where do we see the Spirit in the New Testament? And just a heads up, I am going to call the Spirit a He. I'm going to do that because that's actually what Jesus does. If you look at how Jesus describes the Spirit, He always calls the Spirit a Him, not an It not a her, a him. We'll actually see that in a couple of passages below. Now, God does not have gender like us, so don't think of God and especially the Spirit as being male. But I just want to flag that Jesus calls the Spirit a he, and so I'm just going to do what Jesus does. 
And the first thing to say is that just like Jesus, the Spirit is also identified as God. He's actually named as the Lord in 2 Corinthians 3.17. The Lord is the Spirit. You can see that there. But I think actually one of the clearest examples of the Spirit's divinity comes in Acts chapter 5. So, context for the passage, just to set it up. There's a guy called Ananias and his wife Sapphira. They sell some of their property and then they lie to the apostles saying that they've given all the money from the property when they've actually kept some for themselves. Context. Just to be clear, they didn't actually need to give all their money to the church. (laughs) The problem was that they lied saying they had when they hadn't. But look at how Peter responds, because this tells us something hugely significant about the Spirit. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Do you notice that? To lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God because the Spirit is God. The Spirit is equated with God. But more than that, the Spirit isn't just some kind of impersonal force or power. The Spirit is actually identified as an agent who acts. The Spirit does stuff. You can see that there in Acts 8, where the Spirit speaks to Peter, uh, Philip. And I think this is why the Spirit is actually called a He, because the Spirit isn't an impersonal force, it's not an it. He is an active agent, just as much as the Father and Son are. But who is the Spirit in the New Testament? First and foremost, the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus is never without the Spirit. Have a look at what John John Owen said about the Spirit. By the Spirit was He, Jesus, guided, directed, comforted, supported in the whole course of His ministry, temptations, obedience, and sufferings. You can actually see that in Luke 4. It says, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit. But the Spirit isn't only with Jesus at every step. Jesus also promises that the Spirit will come and dwell with us. Have a look at John 14. This also happens to be one of the passages where the Spirit is called a He. Have a look. Jesus says, I'll ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. Did you notice that? The Spirit dwells with us and He will be in us. It's what we see in Acts 2, the Spirit is poured out upon God's people. But what's the point? Just like in the Old Testament, the Spirit is how God becomes present with His people, with us. But not in a temporary or limited way. He doesn't just dwell with us, He now dwells in us. But how does the Spirit relate to the Father? We're actually given a tiny little hint in John 15. We'll come back to this tomorrow, but have a look. It says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, 
he will bear witness about me. Did you notice that? The Spirit proceeds from the Father. Now, what does that mean? We'll talk more about that tomorrow. But just before we wrap things up, we can add one final detail to our diagram. The Spirit is revealed in the New Testament not as an impersonal force or as a power, but as an active agent alongside the Father and the Son. He is God, but He's also distinguished from the Father and the Son. And the Spirit is how God becomes present with us. Jesus is out there in the world, and He's now at the right hand of the Father, but the Spirit is here, in here. Just as we close, we actually see these three named together in Matthew 28. Jesus says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice it doesn't say names, it just says name. It's one name, three times over. And each of them are God, but they're also distinct from one another. And they're distinguished by their relations as Father. Son and Holy Spirit. So, is the Trinity biblical? Let me answer that question by leaving you with three statements which I think summarize and capture what we've seen in the Bible. The doctrine of the Trinity affirms the existence of one God. The doctrine of the Trinity identifies the Father, Son and Holy Spirit with the one God. And the doctrine of the Trinity distinguishes the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by the relations between them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for revealing yourself in your Son, whom you loved before the creation of the world, and we thank and praise you that you are present with us by your Spirit. Even now as we hear your word, we long to know you as you are. Amen.